Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater Podcast. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. This week's Playwright Podcast is with Simon McBurney as he discusses The Encounter, his one-man show, which ran at San Francisco's current theater in April and May of 2017. The Encounter is currently streaming online through May 22, 2020 at 2 p.m. Pacific. It's on YouTube or through the sfcurrent.com website. Your best experience will be if you plan on watching using headphones. Simon McBurney is the director and performer of The Encounter, a theatrical piece inspired by the book Amazon Beaming by Petru Popescu, Simon McBurney is the artistic director of Complicite, a London-based theatrical company. He's directed several plays and operas over the years and acted in such films as The Theory of Everything, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, as well as the TV series The Borges and The Casual Vacancy. The Encounter comes to San Francisco after a successful run in London and New York and an American tour. The encounter involves the use of headphones and binaural sounds to not only tell the story of the photographer Lauren McIntyre in the jungles of Peru, but to take the audience on its own trip. At the same time as the encounter is playing at the Curran, next door, legendary director Peter Brook, at the age of 92, is bringing his piece Battlefield to ACT's Geary Theatre. The interview opens as I ask Simon McBurney about Peter Brook. Maybe you can just sum up your feeling about who Peter Brook is in terms of theater and in terms of what the Mahabharata and that whole production leading to Battlefield, your perspective on that. Peter Brook is a master, but if I say that he's a master of theater, that suggests a closed, achieved entity. What is most remarkable about him and his life is this refusal to accept anything that he does as fixed and finished. He is in a constant state of search and research and redefinition, almost as if his theatre itself was part of his own movement through life. And as he himself has said, there is only one question ultimately about theatre, regardless of its form, how you do it, and even the subject matter. The question is, is it alive? As his work has gone on, one of the most remarkable aspects of it is to suggest the life of the theatre in ever more simpler and essential forms, almost in a way that reflects the movement of his own body as he moves to a point where he moves less and less. So his theatre reflects 
something of that own personal voyage in the simpler and simpler gestures and plots and word forms to suggest the maximum of possibilities. I noticed in looking at the website of Complicity, your theater group, the theater group that does The Encounter, there's a quote from Peter Brook, meaning that on some level there is a connection theatrically and in terms of your own theater philosophy with Brook. Only in the sense that there's a connection when you do theater with everybody who does theater. You all perform under the same roofs, under the same stars. You are all storytellers. That is everything that you have in common. And what I have always admired about Peter's work is, as I just said, this constant forward movement, investigation, excavation, redefinition, a constant search, which I know in his life is paralleled with an individual spiritual search. It's an inner and outer voyage. And so, of course, that is something I enormously respect and something which I find inspirational. If you are ever asked, if one if person is ever asked who influences you or, or what is the connection between you, I can talk a lot about it, but I feel inarticulate about it because everything that happens to me is part of the infinite set of connections to go and make whatever it is that you make. And I am loath to try and reduce the influence of other people to what are now in our, our worlds a sequence of sound bites. Here I digress, but language itself in our time has, of course, been reduced, abused to the point where we now are not absolutely sure what anybody means. If you read the tweets of the President of the United States, you're at a point where you feel really that language doesn't mean anything at all. My friend, the American, the very fine American actor, Jeffrey Wright, who I was in touch with yesterday, said he despairs of anything meaning anything at all anymore. And I am reminded of the way he says rather sort of ostentatiously, I don't mean it as ostentatious here, because the poet Ezra Pound I both admire and have problems with, but he said in the 1930s, words have become coins in the hands of counter-word mongers, meaning that words have sort of become reduced to economic entities without their resonance and meaning that they once had. They are always barriers between us and whatever lies behind words, the word less. And here you can think of Brooks work again. He's always looking for what is lying behind. And I suppose for me, in this piece, this specific piece, the encounter, yes, it's the story of an encounter between Lauren McIntyre and the jungle and the people that he meets from the Mayaruna community and the question of communication. The question is, why 
are we using sound in this way? That's the proposition to the audience, to ask themselves. I invite them to put on headphones and I lead them to the headphones. And within that, there is a key question because I deliberately tell a true story. I throw some balls up in the air. The question is, what is real? What is not real? Who are we as people? We are storytellers. That is the nature of the human condition. We could call ourselves homo fiction rather than homo sapiens. We have this capacity to stand back from ourselves. That is the way that the brain has developed. And therefore, story is what we're about. So I propose this, saying that this is the way that we touch the real world through story. And story demands a kind of exchange. And I take the example of me, myself, telling stories to my children. And my children involve themselves in the stories as a kind of way of not only getting involved in the story, which they do for real, but also finding a way of getting closer to me and my approaching them. You know, sometimes I tell stories in bed to them and they say, Dada, you're, 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 are you crying? I go, no, 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 I'm not. Because I feel so close to them that I become moved. So it is a very important aspect of who we are as human beings. And I say there is an intimate relationship between empathy and proximity, which we know about in the theater, which I say is why I want to get closer to you now. And if you could put on your headphones. So I introduce the idea of empathy and proximity as the reason as to why we should enter into this particular uh, uh, contract, which, of course, is for me is a deeply, deeply emotional engagement in which I lay myself open and I say, I will introduce you not only to this story, but the most intimate part of my own life where I am in a relationship with my daughter. Why do I do this? Because the metaphor of the man lost in the forest, the metaphor of the man who is lost, who loses his reason to be within his own culture, is of course a metaphor that I feel close to, because I myself am a man who is lost, like many men, within his own culture, saying, I no longer know where I am within my culture. I'm not even sure where I belong. But if you like, throughout the piece, eventually refine that connection with my own daughter. And I tell her the story, and finally she does go to sleep. And so there is a kind of essential closure in that moment. Simon McBurney, as I was jotting down notes... I began to try to get a sense of what this meant to me afterward. Obviously, if we shut our eyes through the two hours of the encounter, we can pretend in a sense that it's a radio play, which is okay. But I found that opening my eyes and observing you on the stage suddenly creates immediacy and it, in a way removes us from the jungle because we're seeing you in the soundboard. Then the disconnect comes in because the sounds we're hearing of the jungle are not what we're seeing on the stage, but are recorded. And there's a further disconnect there. Thank you. I mean, you touch upon the whole reason for doing the show. 
And that is why it is not a piece about sound. It is a piece about theatre, about what you see and what you hear. And yes, exactly, it is about disconnect, about where we connect and where we don't. Our imaginations, our oral imaginations say to us, we are in the jungle. Our visual imaginations say, we're on a completely artificial stage with an anechoic wall behind us, which is designed to not reflect sound. There is nothing organic on stage whatsoever. In other words, we are looking at the world through the filter with which we look at the world every day. We have created a world in which we disconnect ourselves from nature. But as you hear in the piece itself, a man who happens to be my cousin, a very, very distinguished scientist, who says, we are always, wherever we are in the world, we are always part of nature and we cannot escape it just as we cannot escape the planet. But we have constructed ourselves a narrative whereby we disconnect ourselves, as you say, from the world around us. And the consequence of that is to place ourselves in peril. The next disconnect that I found is the disconnect which you talk about at the beginning between reality and memory. When I interviewed Peter Brook at 92, realizing what he was coming back at me was not necessarily memories of the original events from whenever, but rather his memories of them. And when I talk about Am I going to the jungle? Am I talking about my memories of the jungle or am I talking about my memories of the memory, my discussion of the jungle, which is another disconnect entirely which you touch on in the encounter? Memory is such a interesting subject because without memory there is no consciousness. So if I lose my memory, let's say because of disease such as Alzheimer's, I no longer have an identity and it's possible that I would not remember my own name or your name or anything and yet I could be very present here in a way that we don't recognize as human. So consciousness is formed out of what one might call the reservoir of memory. But in biochemical terms, and I became interested in this when I made a piece called Mnemonic about 17, 18 years ago, around the turn of the century. The way that memory works, as we now know, is it's not to do with the cells in our brain, but the connections between the cells. Interesting idea of connection and disconnection, taking up your word again. But essentially, every time we remember, we recreate that electrical pattern, a little bit like a kind of the image of a tree or a set of veins or something whoop, in our head, and then the images, the ideas, the thoughts come back. Now, the key aspect of that activity is that every time you recreate this incredible complexity of, of something that has happened to you, that electrical pattern is, however minutely, always different. Because it is an act of recreation. It is a creative act. Memory is a creative act. And the remarkable thing and the important thing, as far as any artist is concerned, is the process of memory is the same as the process of imagination. Therefore, 
as we're speaking, it allows us to understand why when we go back and see something before, it's not the same. It's not just that sort of a place in our childhood has changed because we've grown up and therefore it looks smaller and so on. It's the fact that the way that we continue to call it up in our memory every time we do so, we change it and change it again and change it again and change it again to the point that it no longer resembles anything that it really is because memory is changing what we're doing. Now, the interesting thing within an oral society and this absolutely fascinates me, is the majority of oral societies in the world, as I understand it, through the different anthropologists that I have met and the different oral societies that I have spoken to, is in most oral societies there is no word for memory, which is very curious because they are reliant upon their memories because they are an oral society, they're not a written one. There is generally a word for remembering but not a word for memory as a kind of bank of stuff which remains the same, like a memory in a computer. So what is interesting about that fact is that people in oral societies, there's an instinctive understanding that memory is a creative thing and a recreative thing that is constantly alive and changing and remolding itself which, of course, is very interesting for somebody in the theatre because every night you're trying to bring it alive and every night it is fundamentally different to the previous night. It's funny, you just hit on something because as you were talking, I'm going, well, what is an actor or director doing? The words, the blocking, the lighting, night after night, all must rely on your memory. What happens when that goes off and what happens when you're working with other people? If your memory is that fluid, you couldn't be on stage doing Shakespeare every night. Homer was very worried about the idea of writing things down because he thought people would start to forget. But the opposite is true. The more literate the society, the more accurate your memory can become. But the accuracy of the memory doesn't necessarily mean that that thing is more alive than it was. The key thing in theatre is that every night you are trying to refine the impulses behind the words. And those are the things which are, if you like, improvisational and which you must re-improvise every night. The moment you start to repeat the lines like a sort of rote, you get the same effect as a child repeating a poem that it doesn't understand. It becomes meaningless. So in the show that I do, in The Encounter in the Curran, every night my sound technicians, who are more like kind of musicians really, have to be absolutely alert to the fact that I might change something. And I frequently do. I shift words around, I shift ideas around, and I am very happy, generally, when I'm making a piece of theatre to even shift whole scenes around and put another scene in, you know, from night to night. And, and this can drive actors absolutely crazy and stage managers. What do you mean you're going to change the show, you know, an hour before we go on stage? I said, well, you know, let's give it a shot. Let's see if it helps. I guess it's a part of the fact that I am interested in constantly digging. My father was an archaeologist, you know, excavation was the way that he discovered things about the world. And I think of the process of making theatre very much as a, as a process of excavation. 
unearthing things. I mean, you go through the, the process of research when you're making a piece of theatre, not because you know where you're going, but because you don't know where you're going. I mean, I like to think of it almost like scientific research, you know. I do mostly writers' interviews, and they use the word discovery a lot in terms of telling a story. It's yeah, not yeah. as if they're inventing. It's as if they're suddenly discovering yes. what they haven't seen. Absolutely. I mean, I would concur with that. Although I can talk a lot, I struggle with articulacy because I struggle with articulating really the feelings that I have or the way that I see the world, which of course is why I then turn it into the theatre because then I can use the theatre as a way of trying to say, well, here I am. Simon McBurney, let's talk a little about the origins of the encounter. How did you discover the, this book about Lauren McIntyre called Amazon Beaming? I was given it by a very close friend of mine who was also a mentor and who directed me several times in different shows called Annie Castledine. She died last year, too young as far as I'm concerned, really too young, radical feminist, socialist, brilliant mind, brilliant reader, brilliant analyzer of text and theater to whom I owe an enormous amount. She gave me this book. I thought that's rather unusual book for her to give me. I mean, she was constantly giving me books because it's about a white man and a kind of colonial, almost like a kind of traditional colonial crime in the sense that this man is going into the forest to take something, albeit photographs, but it is taking photographs unasked of people who have not invited him <laughs> under any circumstances. So it is a, a violation. However, because everything that she gave me was considered, I continued to consider the book. I found it very fascinating, but I never thought that I'd make a piece of theater out of it. And then, as I say, after I made this piece called Mnemonic, I became more and more interested in the workings of the human brain and the question of consciousness and also a question of perception about the way that we think that we are present in the world, we are conscious in the world, and the way that we culturally tend to think of, our, of consciousness as something happening inside our heads. And in so doing, we separate ourselves from the rest of the world. Whereas other cultures think of consciousness as something which extends beyond the body, not in a kind of oogly-boogly way, in which, oh, there's a sort of, there are spirits around us or things like that. No, but on the, in the simple fact that we are interconnected constantly with the world around us and our consciousness is formed of this constant interaction between us and the world around us in these notions of time and space. Then I was thinking about consciousness and I was rereading this book and I thought, well, there is something, there's an interconnection between these two things. And so I kept on working at the two things almost in parallel. And then it occurred to me that I wanted to make a piece gradually, which was about a relationship between a single person, a single member of the audience, but to do it 
in front of one person was perhaps uneconomic in the extreme. And I started to play around with speaking to people through headphones. The book is a book not only about an encounter between McIntyre, this photojournalist uh, who is now dead, but who had this encounter in the late 1960s, the beginning of the 70s, with these people in a very remote area of the Peruvian jungle. It's not only the story of that, but also the story of an encounter with the idea of time, time as a 19th century abstract in which man suddenly measures time, but that is not what time is, but then in so doing starts to measure the form of the world and the world around him, which then becomes a kind of constriction. And so within the book of Amazon Beaming, there is the consideration of time, the consideration of what it means to destroy the normal coordinates which attach us to this world. And then to the consideration of what it means to, as it were, within those coordinates, mapping the world, not only the physical world, but the coordinates of what we consider to be reality. And another issue, the question of communication. How do we communicate with each other? How do I give you the meaning of, you know, I don't know whether what I'm saying now is communicating through the radio to people who are listening in the San Francisco area. There are so many barriers. There is the fact that they won't have seen the show, the fact that I have this curious British accent, the fact that, you know, uh, I may not be speaking in any way, yet there is something behind my words and something behind the words of the people who are listening, which is what I would call beyond words, and which perhaps one thought in ten might reach people, and they say, I understand that, but I don't quite know why. So all of these themes, if you like, run through this book or underneath this book. A book is not just the words on the page. The book is, if you like, the struggle of the writer, the storyteller, which in this case is describing a man who is also telling a story, who's also telling the story of a set of people, which is also telling the story of origins and ideas, a set of filters in which everybody is trying to touch on something which is beyond words. And then on top of that, in the story that we're seeing on stage, you're also telling it to your daughter. Now, what I notice there is the moment, and it happens multiple times, but one in particular, where the story almost gets away from you and the audience. There's a loud crash, and I actually turned around because I was wondering if something had happened in the theater, and it was the daughter saying, Daddy, can I have a glass of water or whatever it was? Yes. And it brings you back, right back. It's necessary to constantly remind ourselves of where we are. This is not a fantasy of a man who somehow discovers spiritual truth in the jungle because he lets go of certain things. I'm asking for the audience to ask that they themselves should ask questions of where they are, that they should be reminded that they're in a theater or reminded that by my daughter of their lives 
And it's also a little challenge to see, well, what happens, having been reminded of that, to the story when we launch ourselves back into this other reality, which is the imaginative reality of storytelling. Not just in a banal sense, say, oh, well, who's the main character in this play? What is the point of this play? It's not conventional in the sense of a conventional play drama. But it is conventional in the terms of a theatrical experience. The origin of the word theatre is teatros, which means the seeing place. A place where perhaps not only you go to look at something, but where you see something in terms of understanding. And so what I want the audience to do is to feel that they are in a conventional theatre and yet to ask themselves questions about the nature of that theatre. There's a point at which the protagonist thinks that he is dying. He starts to describe the moment of dying, which every night at the moment I think is very personal to me because a large number of very, very close friends of mine have died over the last couple of years. And he says, death is a bank of lights being switched off. It's a vast theatre in my head that grows like a cacophony and then it dims and then black and this image of our consciousness almost like a theater like a set of stories in which we play ourselves we are ourselves but we are also playing ourselves that is what is the paradox of what it means to be human we experience life but we also narrate our own lives. We are acting ourselves out, you know, as some great thinkers have said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. We have our entrances and our exits. We are self-conscious. I'm acting out this very odd role of being somebody called Simon McBurney. I don't know who that is. It's a kind of thing that I've made up and it's now something because... I am publicly that person because I perform in the theatre, in television, in film. So I have a kind of public thing. I even have a sort of public place on this very odd thing called, you know, social media. And so I am multiple things. And none of these things are real. They are imaginative constructs. We are what we do in the theatre, which is... We are storytellers, we're constructors of meaning. A play, as we know, is not theatre. It could become theatre in the hands of a good theatre maker. But I would contest the idea that even the actors on stage, that's not the theatre. The theatre is constructed in this curious, dare I say, complicity between the audience and the people on stage. It requires both people to enter into an agreement and to participate It requires the audience to imagine and to give something as much as it requires the person on stage to inhabit and to tell the story. It is a collective enterprise. And if for some reason you decide not to enter into that collective enterprise, inevitably, as it were, the piece of theatre will fail. You know, I tried to make an invitation at the beginning for people to enter into this and to ask their own questions. It was very wonderful last week in Los Angeles when I had a talk back 
where a woman said, thank you. I don't know how you did it, but three months ago, my husband died. And he was present and talking to me throughout this whole piece. Are you a shaman? I said, no, this is the thing that you have constructed. I have done nothing. But I am very moved and touched by the fact that you have engaged in this piece. And as a consequence, you have brought your story to it. And because of your own openness, this story, in a sense, has come alive. And that, for me, is the greatest wonder of the potential of theatre, is that something can become physically present, which we all know is, in fact, just an aspect of our collective imaginations. Thank you.